Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Dave Klein. Dave is an accomplished writer, advisor and co-founder of the MGMT Accelerator, a program dedicated to developing system-focused leaders. He has decades of experience as the COO of multiple divisions of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, and a former managing director of Moody's Analytics. He brings a wealth of knowledge in leadership, and today we want to focus on this concept of what we call the leveraged leader, and that's about selecting the right people and delegating to them, empowering them, and making sure that we're working smarter, not harder. So very much looking forward to today's conversation. Without any further ado, Dave, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what led you to the type of work that you do today. Growing up mostly, Mac, quite frankly, you know, like we I right, rewind the clock. You know, I was lucky enough to jump into some to a good company consulting right out of the gate. And like all good consulting companies, they they push you in and quickly you're leading other people. And I made all the mistakes that everybody makes. You know, like I just thought I had to work harder. So the things that got me, you know, to being a good associate, that would be the same thing that like let me be a good leader. And then I went to Moody's Analytics and led teams there and I hired the wrong people and I held on to people for too long. I didn't set clear enough goals. I didn't, you know, properly get aligned with people on expectations. I thought they could read my mind, you know, like I made all those mistakes. And at one point I got a coach, you know, at one point I had screwed up pretty badly and they were like, your punishment slash gift, you know, depending on which frame of mind I wanted to look at it that day was like, here's a coach and the coach is going to hopefully get through to you. And, you know, I tell the story in the course, but we, you know, we sort of sit down and he starts to go through like, well, tell me about this and tell me about this, you know, what happened over here? Why is this not going well? And I was exasperated you know, like all these different people who weren't doing what I needed them to do. And he's like, well, the common thread through all of it is you, like you're the one who's not doing the things that need to be done. You're the one not providing the vision. And so uh, I think what led us here was the mistakes that led to that moment that then actually was unlocking for me. And like, if I could gift that forward to other people, that's what I wanted to do. Well, thank you for being so open about that. And if you're listening into the audience right now and you've got some leadership years under your belt, you could be honest with yourself right now as well. Think about what Dave has just shared. We don't always get it right. We don't always get it right. But what makes the difference of great leaders is those that are able to learn from it. So what I'd love to hear from you here, Dave, hypothetical question, do you think that those mistakes you made made you a better leader today? I would say absolutely, but could I rewind the clock and have made fewer or made better ones? Or quite honestly, perhaps the best insight is to have made them faster. You know, like when I go back through time and say, okay, is some amount of making mistakes and finding your own voice and your own flavor of management or leadership required? Like, I think absolutely. And when I look at the the steepest curve, when I was having the most impact, when I was learning the most, when I was growing the most, there was this mixture of confidence and humility at the same time where I was was confident enough to make a call and sort of live with it and then humble enough to take in input and feedback and change. And so I think you do have to make those mistakes. And if you had to pick, you know, holding back and like waiting for everything to be perfect or sort of going fast and being agile, I think I would try to go back in time and and be more agile, like be a little bit faster. I think I probably could have compressed my learning curve even more. 
Yeah, really interesting. I'm picking up a few things there, Dave. The first one is we are going to make mistakes, so you can have a little bit of self-compassion about that. But there are ways that you can, I'll use your term, your program's called an accelerator. You can accelerate. You can accelerate your own growth, accelerate your learning, and come out the other end as a more complete leader if you're doing some intentional approach to to doing this. So tell me more about your thoughts about a learning mindset and how leaders in the audience can create this cycle where they're really paying attention so that they are becoming better, so that they are accelerating in your words. Well, I think if I was trying to boil it down to, you know, we we spend 20 plus hours with people on this, but if I was getting it down to two concepts that your audience could take away, and I'll dive into each of them, I think one of them would be self-awareness. Like, how do you raise the fidelity of the picture you have of yourself to be higher? And then the other one would be systems. You know, how do you take your understanding of the strategy, the team that you have, the mission you're on, their capabilities, and get the most from the collective by how you put them together? And so, you know, if I was starting Starting with self-awareness, you know, there's a lot, there's lots of vehicles. Like I don't think everyone has to pick the same vehicle. You know, like there are, whether it's personality tests, it's journaling, it's getting a coach, but something where you start to realize like, where, where do I have superpowers? Where do I have deficiencies? Because we all have them. How do you know when your superpowers overshadow someone on your team in a way you don't intend, right? If I'm an extroverted leader who likes to think out loud and I'm leading a team of introverted software developers, am I doing them a service or harm in terms of how I lead? And so how do you really raise that level of fidelity so that you know where you show up and you know when do you call your own number? When do you call their number? Things like that. So, yeah, some interesting things there. So self-awareness and process. And yes, we all have our own strengths. We all have our weaknesses. And one of the things that many people do is they work on their weaknesses instead of sharpening the saw of their strengths. But then you brought up something interesting I haven't thought about before. And I want to unpack that a little bit more. And that is, are your strengths overshadowing other people and not allowing them to shine? How do you come to that realization, Dave? Tell me more about that. Well, I think you need to then, if you've built this language or rubric or like mosaic of yourself, you know, you have a framework by which you can understand who you are, you can apply that same framework to everyone around you. Right. If you just if you put it into a, a very easy transactable space, right, if people have taken one of the personality tests like MBTI or something, you know, you can sort of say like, oh, I'm on this end of the dimension. They're on this end of the dimension. How is that interaction going to look? So, again, irrespective of which one you pick, you can start to say like you can start to use that same frame and say, oh, we're going to line up really well here. That might be dangerous. We might think exactly the same or, you know, that's a place where it feels really good that we think the same, but it might get us to a worse outcome. Oh, over here, I interact very differently than this person person interacts. And as the leader, it's going to be more incumbent upon me to go meet them where they are than to expect them to come to me. Um, And so those would just be like two simple examples of how you could do it. Yeah, I like this. So what I'm hearing is there's self-awareness and then there's situational awareness. And that situational awareness is about the awareness of what your team need and the thought that as the leader, that you're there to create the environment where everyone can do their very best work. And by doing that, you're then co-creating an environment where the sum of the parts can be greater than or the, the outcome can be greater than the sum of the parts because you're building these blocks where you're working together and you're allowing other people to flourish and you're bringing your gifts to the table in a way that complements their gifts with a lot of awareness of where you overlap, where you don't overlap, where you complement each other, where you can work together in the best environment. So I'm hearing self-awareness, situational awareness of those around you, and then how are we creating this environment where everyone can bring their gifts to the table? How does that sit with you? 
It sits pretty well. I sort of had a one eyebrow up thinking because I was the the very last part is I think that's the tricky. I, the one I was like wrestling with is like, do I actually agree that everyone can bring their own best selves? And I think I do with a few caveats, which are like, if I think about it in terms of I tend to go to sports a lot, like I enjoy what I love about sports is like the very clear scoreboard, you know, and the, the teams like they live in public, right? Like the, each organization has a general manager, they've got a coach, they've got athletes, they've got a scoreboard. So we see if they win or lose and they have all the same dynamics we have as business leaders, right? They've got talent issues, they've got budget issues, et cetera. And so I, I go there because, you know, as I think about some of the, a lot of the teams that I've studied, you know, the, the coach tends to have a system and then it is, yep, we're trying to find the best players who fit the system. In some cases, you're asking those players to, you're getting the most from them as a collective, but at times you might be asking them to take a half step back as an individual to get the most as a collective. So that was the one part where I was like, yes, you know, And then I think the other thing that goes in hand with that is depending on what it is we need to develop in someone, people can only develop so much so fast. And so if you get, if you sort of using that sporting analogy, there's times where we're going to say, we have to go out into the market and upgrade the talent so that the whole system can rise. You know, like there's an example in American football we saw a couple of years ago where, you know, a young coach, Sean McVay had put together a very talented team, but they kept hitting a cap and he eventually made a big trade to get a new quarterback with a higher threshold. So he could run a, he could like run a system that was more complicated and they won the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Like that kind of idea. And I don't think he would have had the time to develop the existing quarterback to be that good over, you know, the goals he had. And so I think managers wrestle with that same sort of, it's this very complicated algorithm of like individual success and collective success alignment to the system and then things like that. So that's, that was my only, like, I mostly agree, but I think it's, there's some nuance. I love the thing that you're adding there because it's about, well, what does the team need from me today? What does the team need from that person today? And it could be that they need them, that what serves the team well that day is holding back a little bit to allow someone else to take the ball, if you like, and get out there and do their thing. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, So the, it's not about everyone performing at 100% of their super power that day. It's about the situational awareness, again, to pull back and to, allow others to step forward, et cetera, et cetera. And and that's what's going to make an overall stronger and more resilient team as well, if you're able to do that. And then we're also starting to touch on the the concept of selecting the right team and surrounding yourself with those people that can unlock the full capacity of the team. So you're with your football analogy, that that team had reached a capacity constraint and they needed something to change the the challenge, the status quo and to unlock that capacity. And I want to come back to team selection and surrounding yourself with others uh, shortly. You've also brought up this term process. You've brought up football coaches. And I know that one of the things with your MGMT accelerator is an MGMT playbook. Tell us more about that. Well, we, to some degree, uh, some of this was an accident. Like it was a, or call it a semi-intentional experiment. My wife and I, when I left Bridgewater, we bought a business. It was focused on online education reviews, a company called Skillscatter. And it was basically reviewing all kinds of different courses around the web from Python to piano. And but part of the thesis of buying it was there was this new move to these cohort-based courses. And so we were like, oh, we can, part of how we'll grow this business is we'll start to review those. And the thinking was we'll have this business and then I want to teach, but I'm just 
going to, where we are in Connecticut, there's five schools that are the top 25 in the US. So I'm like, oh, I'll just figure out how to get into one of these and teach business nearby. And sort of serendipity pushed two things together where I would say I became like an accidental Twitter creator. You know, like our, as soon as we bought that business, Google did its thing and changed the algorithm and crushed it. And we were in this moment of horror of like, oh my God, I've waited 20 years to go out on my own. And the business I just bought is 30% less profitable than it was last week. Well, let's go get into social media. We can use that to offset some of the traffic. Took a cohort-based course with Sawhill Bloom, if if you're on Twitter at all with him. That then led me to starting to write about management and leadership, led me to the team on Maven, who was like, why would you teach at a university when the world could be your classroom? Come teach with us. And so ran an experiment and I wrote a Twitter thread one night on delegation and went to bed. And my wife and I woke up with a 150 person wait list for our first cohort. And that was, you know, that was last March. We ran it for the first time and we've pretty much run a cohort every month since for either in the public or with private companies. So to some degree, the accidental, the accidental uh, leadership program has now become the real business. And the one we bought is a little bit the side hustle now. Oh, that's outstanding. And congratulations on your success. It it shows that when you get out there and you tell a strong message and you share with people what you're about, that you can attract your audience and, you know, people out there need help. They need help. And delegation is certainly one of the things that they need help with uh, the most. So that's great, Dave. And that's really what inspired the playbook. Just to, I know that was a question you had asked me. It was like, well, how did that come to be? So we, we, we built this program and we have these like, you know, little tweets, but like we wanted, like, was there a way for us to have a deeper conversation with leaders that didn't, that weren't quite ready for the accelerator? And that we, so we started writing that at the beginning of the year. And it was just exactly, I think a thing you and I share is like, I wanted to be able to give, you know, in under five minutes, here's a thing to think about, focus on and implement this week. You know, could you set clear expectations or could you, here's six questions you could use in your interviewing process this week to get a better read on culture, et cetera, et cetera. So, because again, I believe a lot of times people get, they get promoted to become a manager. They don't get a lot of training. They don't necessarily get a lot of support. Like a lot of companies think of it as a destination, not a new career. And it really is a new craft. And so if people could read this and, you know, it was going to help them, we would develop deeper relationships with them. And, you know, down the road, maybe some of them will join us in the accelerator, but that's sort of what the playbooks are about. Yeah, I love it, Dave. And and there's something important I'm picking up there. And that is like, when I think of the word playbook, I can unfortunately hear the word cookie cutter sometimes like, oh, you just follow this script and everything will be fine. But we know that leadership is more complex than that. And human beings are more complex than that. And what works for one team won't necessarily work for another team. What works for one leader won't necessarily work for another leader. In fact, what works for one team today might not even work for the same team six weeks from now, because we're all work in progress and where we go through different phases, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm, what I'm hearing from you about the playbook is it an approach to get you to stop, reflect and think, and then intentionally apply some kind of learning, like the examples that you gave, you know, here's six questions you might consider in your next interview, but not for someone to come in and read it like a robot, but actually to get them to stop and reflect and, and think. How does that sit with you? Well, I'd say if you, whether we're talking about sports or business, if you have a play that only has one option, it's not a very good play, right? But to your point, like, cause you don't know what your opposition's going to do. You don't know what your market's going to do. You don't know what the economy's going to do. So if you've set up a playbook where the only path is like one way through, I would say is probably going to fail. The best plays often have, you know, option A. And then if that's covered option B and option C and option D. And so that's how we try to think about it, which is, yeah, this, here's some universal principles on delegation that could work anywhere. But if you want to apply this in a three 
three-person startup, it might be different than over here in a 50,000-person bank. And if your team is growing, it might look different than if your team is shrinking. And if, you know, so to sort of lay out some of those contours to then get them into the part of the decision tree where like, oh, I could probably apply those couple of steps for me. Yeah, spot on. All right. Love it, Dave. Now you said something really interesting early days, and I want to come back to that. And it is about some of these transitions that leaders make. And you said that in your own experience, that your first journey was you thought that you needed to work harder. Now that is certainly what many first-time leaders land themselves in. They've been really good at their craft, right? So they've been great software engineer, great accountant, great nurse, whatever it may be. They've been successful and they've gotten noticed by doing what they were doing. And then they get promoted and they think, oh, okay, so now they're paying me more. Maybe I need to do more of what I was doing. And they start working harder. They start working longer hours. But you and I know that that's not the secret to great leadership. How do we get people, to use your term, accelerate that transition? of mindset from it's not a you know what was successful and what got me to here is not necessarily what's going to work when I take my next step how do we break that cycle where people think that they just have to work harder I think there's usually two things I'm trying to nudge people towards. I'd say awareness and alignment. So let me pull those apart. So I think awareness is for the individual. Is it even know that what's required is different, right? And that you will have to value different things as a leader. You'll probably have to develop new skills, right? So if I say values, I'm saying like you have been rewarded for what you deliver up until this moment. Now you have to value work through other people. It's very different, right? Like one gets a like you in the first one, you get the trophy and the other one, your team gets the trophy, right? That's just like a different, and the one who can really derive joy and care about achieving it that way, like that's a values transition. Like that's hard. But even knowing that that's, you know, possible and necessary, I think is, is how you start to raise awareness. Same with skills, right? You were probably strong in your technical skills. And all of a sudden now it's, can you prioritize work? AKA, can you say no? Can you evaluate other people's work and do so in a way that motivates them to improve versus demotivates them and gets them to want to quit? Can you give that feedback in a clear way? And so the one side is going to be that awareness that these types of changes need to happen. And then I think the alignment is the one people skip, but you can sort of give them that those puzzle pieces. But the alignment is up because there's someone evaluating you, right? They're evaluating you as a leader. And the thing I always try to remind the folks I work with is from the CEO down to the first timer, 60% of managers fail, right? Worse than a coin flip. There's a, there's a McKinsey study. There's a There's like five different studies. The number is always between 50 and 60%. So you're like, like, okay, I am taking direction, being evaluated and getting guided by someone who's a coin flip. And I too, now that I'm in a management position are also a coin flip. So you're like, those aren't great odds when you put them together. And so the one way I have found to improve the odds is just to be very explicit and like very aligned as much as possible, like over communicate. And so I don't know if I'm, I'm giving advice to a first time manager, you know, I'm saying manage up really effectively. Like, this is what I think I need to be doing. This is where I need to put my attention. These are the things I'm going to have to say no to, to have the capacity to do that. Like, are you aligned? Do you agree? Am I missing anything? And I think if you do that, you could probably be in the 40%. So there's a few things I want to unpack there. I, I love it, Dave, in terms of this coin flip. I've never thought of that. That's really got me thinking. So the awareness, it's not about you anymore. It's about your team and you might need to shift a little bit in terms of what you do and how you take pride in your work, etc. 
a lot of it. Not a little bit, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you, Dave. And then this alignment piece and the and the coin flip is, is really interesting, but then this kind of setting of expectations, like over-communicated, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing I was wanted to challenge there and see if we can unpack a little bit is what might hold people back from that is feeling that if they stick up their hand and ask for help or stick up their hand and, and ask for that direction, that might be seen as some kind of sign of weakness to go, oh, okay, my boss is going to think that they picked me for this job, but now I'm proving to them that I'm not up to it. You and I know that's not the case. That's not how people will reflect if someone asks for help. But how do we get people past that nervousness about going to their boss and going, hey, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing here or here are my thoughts. Can you help me, et cetera? How do we get them to do that? Actually, not not to disagree with disagree, but like, I actually think they will get, there will be some managers who will push back on that. Like, I don't think it's a totally unfounded fear. Uh, you have to manage it well. So I just, I almost want to acknowledge that like, there's some amount of managers who you would go to and say like, I need help or whatever else. And, and they will say things like, I pay you to bring me solutions, not problems. Right. And so just, okay, well, let's acknowledge that that could be true in the world. And now, well, what do you want to do about it? I, I'm still with you, which is I would rather go get the help I need, go get the, and get, achieve the alignment I need to achieve. And so how do we be smart about that. The thing that I've found to be best is they hired you for a reason. And so if you're going to go ask for help, reestablish where you are already credible, go to get help with a thesis of what you would do if they didn't have a better opinion. Do you know what I mean? Like those two things alone. So, you know, I've never had to, I'm now heading up marketing. I have experience in three parts of marketing, but not the fourth. And so I'm going to be asking my boss for help on the fourth. Well, you can remind them like, yep, we're doing this comprehensive campaign. And I, you know, I feel very good about the SEO, the paid market. Sort of thing, but we've never actually worked with creators before. The path I'm going to go down with creators is going to look like A, B, and C. Does that seem right to you? Do you think I'm missing anything? Like, it's just, you're showing so much command and showing confidence, but also humility to say, like, I don't want to, I don't want to make a simple mistake that you could save us from. And so like, can you put your attention over here and help me? And A, B, and C might be totally wrong. It might just be missing a D. They might want to swap a B for a, an E, you know, like, but that's, I think that's very different than if you just show up and say, like, I don't know what to do. Then they are going to go back to asking that question of like, did we hire the right person for this? Yeah, I love the way that you're framing that. And this combination of confidence and humility has come back again. That's a, a good takeaway from today's episode already to think about that. And if you came to me and I was your leader or manager and you said it in the way that you said it, the, the way that you framed that, I'd feel very respected as well. So I'm going to put the word respect out there. Oh, cool. All right. So Dave, yeah, Dave respects me for my knowledge. And I, I would feel very flattered that you came to me if you did it in that frame. I would potentially feel very frustrated if you came to me with a complete blank stare of, you know, you've asked me to do this and I don't even know where to start. That's where the frustration could kick in. So yeah, I, I love the way that you framed that, Dave, and it's a good takeaway there. All right. I want to come back to the awareness piece again and some of these mindset shifts that we make. The other challenge that a lot of people have, Dave, is about ego and identity. And I don't mean ego in an egotistical way. I just mean that what they, how they see themselves in the world, right? And when they were that individual contributor, it was them that was on the stage and getting the salesperson of the year award or, or whatever it was, whatever that acknowledgement was that they were good at their job. It was them that was on the stage and getting the applause. And then as they shift to being a leader, it does become about their team. How can we help people with that transition if they've made their identity around this highly successful individual, but now they're going to be a team leader? 
Well, this is the, this might be the bridge into leverage where, you know, from my perspective, and I struggle with this a ton, which is you, you get pretty good. You have that identity. And, you know, as you start to move up the management ranks, you have to delegate, you have to hire more senior people, things of that nature. And when we're, when I work with leaders who are delegating or struggling to delegate, there's always this fear, you know, there's always, it won't be done as well. I'll lose control. Some of them are more noble. It'll be, oh, I don't want to dump on my team. You know, it already has too much to do, but and so, and some of the fears are real, you know, like it won't be done as well. But if you will eventually as an individual run out of t- hours in the week or hours in the day, you could possibly work or competencies you could possibly master. Like you will at some point hit a ceiling or at least it will like level off pretty to a pretty slow growth. And the one way you can sort of multiply that impact is through leverage, is through being able to take small bits of what you know to accelerate and level up your team who even if they're doing it 85% or 80% as well as you were doing it, once you have 5, 10, 15 of them, that's like orders of magnitude more than you could have done on your own. And so it just becomes like, well, what's important? If the importance is mastery of a single craft and you're comfortable with the trade-offs that that comes with, then like stay in the craft. Like don't become a manager. Like this is really, this is hard work. It's a very different type of work. If what you want to do is build something that requires many people to come together in a coordinated way and multiply what you can do, then like this is a really good path. But you sort of have to take what's required to do it. Sort of my, that, that, that leverage thing is what was unlocking for me. I'm like, oh, the team of 50, we can do some real damage. Yeah, this is really cool, Dave. So the thing there, I want to acknowledge something before we go past is what you said, that it is a completely fine career choice to decide that I want to become the deep expert in my field and become an SME and be the person that only ever be the expert in my field. And people are going to come to me or gravitate towards me for expert opinion or mentoring in that craft, but I may not choose to go down the leadership path. That's a completely acceptable thing. And some companies are not well structured for that, I've got to say, because things like pay rises and recognition are, are connected to how many people you lead, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a, a reasonable thing to do, right? So, And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the first thing I want to say. And then the second thing, our thoughts are very much aligned here, uh, Dave, which is you are only gifted 24 hours in a day. You're a human being. And if you've got a team of 10, all of a sudden you've got the mathematical potential. Obviously it doesn't work pure math, but you've got 240 hours in a day now, right? And of course you're not going to work people 24 hours a day, but you get the point. You've got 10 times as much capacity instantly, but then it comes down to how are you going to channel that capacity and how are you going to align people? How are you going to get them all rowing in the same direction? And if you can get all of your team rowing in the same direction, you can dominate your field and the impact, to use your word there, Dave, the impact that you can now have on the world is substantially multiplied. So the sooner you kind of get past that, it's not about me, it's about my ability to get all of these people rowing in the same direction so that I can have a bigger impact on the world, the sooner you'll make the transitions you need to make as a leader. How does that sit with you, Dave? It sits pretty well. And then I think, you know, if I were going to expand on one thing, I think you're right. Like I was going to say, when you started to talk about staying in the craft, I was like, you know, there just aren't, there aren't that many companies yet who are really willing to reward their top craftspeople in the way that they reward their leaders. And I think that that is shifting. I mean, I think you're seeing it probably with software leading the way. Like I think there are software developers in the world making more than their managers. Like I have enough data to have seen it that those 10x developers, those 100x developers, like 
can be rewarded in that way. And I think you'll start to see more uniquely multiplying roles like that through time. So I don't, so I, so I think you're, I think it is a small, slow shift, but we will, we will see more of it. I think it also sort of then opens up the door the places you see it most is going to be in code, which is like another form of leverage, right? The reason you can pay people like that is because if they're going to write this amazing piece of software that then millions of people are going to pay you to use at no marginal cost, it's very easy to give them millions of dollars because the market's giving you tens of millions or hundreds of millions. You know, just look at the top companies now, right? All the ones with trillion dollar valuations are effectively driven by software. Yeah. So these prolific individual contributors, the ones that are incredible in their field could be the ones that create the next patent that is the IP that underpins the valuation of the company for many years to come. So we don't want to, we don't want to lose sight of that. And then the team leadership path is, yes, that's about the multiplication effect and bringing these individuals together in the same direction. Okay. So we're deep into this kind of concept of the leveraged leader now, and we have mentioned the word delegation. You brought up some of the, let's say, limiting beliefs that can happen with delegation. And one One of my least favorite quotes in the world, by the way, Dave, is if you want something done right, you just do it yourself. I think that's a very limiting belief. You brought up some others before. How do we get people to make those shifts away from comments like that, that I'm going to do a better job than the rest and all of these things that might hold them back from creating this environment based on delegation and creating on getting more multiplication and throughput through the team? I swear if there's a silver bullet, that's the only thing I would teach because it's it again, like we're we were talking before we hit record, you know, like I'm working with leaders with 10, 15, 20 years experience and they're still coming because they're like, I don't know how to delegate. And I'm like, how have you been leading for a decade and you don't know how to delegate? Like, isn't isn't that most of the job? And it's not that they don't give other people work, but that's I think that's different than creating like a sustainable system where the work is done by the optimal person for the long term benefit. And I think the key part is that last part, the long term benefit and that because that's the trade you have to make because the fears they have are correct. Like one of the other fears we didn't talk about is like, it's going to take me longer to delegate it than it is to do it myself. And they're right. They're a hundred percent right. This time, this first time, it will definitely take you longer to teach the person to create the standard operating procedure, whatever method you're going to use to delegate it. And probably the second time, because the person will screw it up and you'll have to give them some feedback and change it. But the fourth, fifth, sixth and nth times, it doesn't take longer. It takes you far less time. And so you have to sort of make this investment to get this return on the back end. And that's that's sort of the framing that like tends to be the light bulb for the people we work with, which is like, oh, it's like investing. I've got to take a little money and a little pain now to get a return later. And that's sort of how you have to think about delegation, I think. Yeah, I love it. It's funny. The reason why I'm sitting here chuckling away is within the space of a few minutes, we've covered my least favorite quote. And now we're going to be right in the middle of my favorite quote, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, which is a very old African proverb. And it's something that I I live by. And it's this long-term thing and this investment. I love that mindset or that reframing that you're saying that this is an investment in the future. I'll go even one step further in terms of then who you might delegate to, right? So I'd love your thoughts on this, Dave. So one, if you want to go fast, just do it yourself and you'll get it done quicker. Yep. Okay. But if you want to invest in the future, you're going to delegate this to to someone else. Then I'm going to say that you need to be quite intentional about that. So I'll use an example. Let's say that you've got someone in your team who is the best data engineer that you've got in the team. Your tendency might be to delegate to that person 
every single time because you know that they're going to do it fast. They're going to do it accurately. The job is going to get done on time. All of these things because I'm going to go to that person. They're the go-to person for data design. But what you might be creating is a single point of dependency or a choke point in the business. That might become your capacity constraint in the future. So in your delegation, by picking a the person next to them where that person could mentor them through it, you're now starting to also multiply the team. So what are your thoughts there about, okay, we need to shift from just do it yourself to delegate to others, but now we're going to be quite intentional about how we delegate. How does that sit with you? There's probably no, we get this comment and the feedback very often through our program, which is the word intentional comes up a lot. Like, oh, you, you mentioned the word intentional a lot because I really do. I believe that most leaders lead intuitively. And when we go through the different frameworks, we go through the different practices, we go through the different stories, like a lot of times we're just sort of converting their intuition into intention. So when we go through the delegation, it's, it's super simple. It's what, who, when, and why, right? So we identify the work, like what pieces of work should move. And we have a couple prompts for that. You know, like some of it's going to be, you know, is it an existential piece of work? Like I'd be a little careful of delegating that. Is it experimental? You know, have you already delegated a piece? Can you delegate more? We talk about delegating goals over tasks, but basically can you look at your portfolio of work that needs to move and pick the logical stuff to move. Then to your point, you're like, well, who, who's going to get this work? Is it going to be the right title kind of in your description, right? Oh, it's data. It must go to the data analyst. Sometimes that makes sense, you know, or is it going to be because you're delegating for their development? Or is it because you're delegating to test someone who's on a pit, you know, someone who's like on the edge and you're trying to get a fair read and you're going to give them a new piece of work to say like, oh, they can stay because they're actually coming up the curve or like, no, 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 this person's just not a fit. Then we do the when, when's the one everyone always skips and they just delegate it when it's on their desk. But if you ever tried to delegate to someone in finance during the quarter close or delegate to a developer with three days left in a sprint. It just doesn't make any sense. So like think about the rhythm of your business and say, when does it make sense for me to delegate it? And then why, right? The, there, you have lots of good reasons and you name some of them, right? You might do it because I have key person risk and I want to buy that down by you know having more people who know how to do things. I might do it because I've had it for a long time and I know that I'm not getting the most out of it. And this, you know, I would say like my grind is their growth and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I, I, I know how to automate that. Let me get rid of it for you. You know, and so they're thrilled and I'm thrilled. Um, and we went from a world where I was miserable doing the task. And so there's lots of other whys as well. But if you if you just sort of answer those quick questions in like a minute or two, it usually gives you a pretty good decoder ring of, you know, how to delegate in an optimal fashion. You sort of look at that portfolio of work. Yeah, I love it. And I want to kind of now go a little bit on top of it and then go, okay, so you're stopping and you're making an intentional act here. What am I delegating? Who am I delegating to? When am I going to delegate it? And to what end? Why am I delegating this? And if you can frame that in your own mind, you're then going to have a good intentionality to use that word again. Uh, Am I now picking up, Dave, that you're then transparently sharing it with that individual? So when you do decide, okay, yep, I'm going to do this, I'm going to delegate it to that person. Are you then pulling them apart, uh, pulling them aside and saying, okay, I'm giving this to you now and this is what I'm delegating to you and I'm doing it now because of this and this is why I'm doing it. Tell me more about that conversation. Yeah, I would be, I would actually be going through all of that. And then I would be, again, it will depend a little bit on the person and where they are, right? Like someone who I've had a chief of staff before who worked for me for years, delegating something to her that was, you know, similar to something I had delegated before it could be done in t- a 10 second, like, Hey, can you grab this? Because all those questions were pre-answered from the, from our history, right? The someone brand new, I might actually have to sit down and say, you know, here's how I'm thinking about, you know, do you have questions? What else am I missing? 
seeing, you know, a much more you know, drawn out conversation as part of developing them to get to the place where they might be like my chief of staff and that that fluid. The other thing I tend to think about in that conversation is what do I know about them? So back to that awareness piece, right? We talked about you could have the framework for your own self-awareness and for the pictures of your people. What do I know about this person that I'm giving the work to, right? Is this maybe this is a type of project that I know is a stretch for their development, but I also know that this is a type of person who will go away and burn themselves out and never ask for help. So I might delegate it with some sort of near-term milestone or near-term check back to be like, oh, I don't, I know I'm going to save, like, I know where this is going to go if you get stuck. And if you don't get stuck, then the, it'll be an easy milestone. And so we'll set up things like that. But again, I'm sort of using that picture of what I know about the person to sort of create guardrails or incentives or, you know, just set them up for success. Yeah. All right. So I'm hearing an element there of uh, adaptive leadership and really understanding the needs of the person that I'm delegating to right now to make sure that I'm thinking about their needs as I, as I go through this. And it might be different for a very junior person versus a very experienced person. I, I like that, Dave. And I think that might be a good segue now to talk about one of the other challenges, which is micromanagement versus empowerment. So when people get into this delegation field and they're dipping their toe in the water, I'm going to put it out there. Nine out of 10 leaders will tend to gravitate towards a bit of micromanagement for a while because they do think that they know the best way to do this task that's being delegated. So all of a sudden there's a certain level of micro detail of, okay, this is this is what I need you to do and this is how I need you to do it, et cetera, et cetera. How do we get past micromanagement and how do we balance micromanagement versus empowerment and enablement? Pausing because, you know, usually the way that I would get through that is inside of that expectation setting in that I think a lot of times when people delegate in the sort of like, you know, what, who, when, why 98% of the thought is into what it's like, oh, Mick, you're the head of sales. I need you. I have, here's a 20, you have a $20 million goal this year. Go get them. When my wife and I built the course, we would, we've gotten a fight about this one because I was like, well, actually the how is more important than the what. And she's like, are you crazy? The what is the most important thing that that's how everybody works. Like they just tell you to go do the goal and then they, you do it and they reward you or you don't do it, they fire you. And I was like, I don't think so. I think it actually matters the what or the the how matters as well. And so we sort of went back and forth and I was telling this story of, you know, it's a, a long time ago, but we were doing recruiting and we were struggling to get the best candidates, you know, like the, the markets were getting more competitive, the tech companies were coming in and, you know, we put this person in charge who was like very, like a very different thinker, right? Like we were going to go on campus, we're going to find the different people, we're going to get it back on track, like really world-class thinkers. And he did, he went and, and totally did that. The what he achieved, he came back with a class of outstanding undergrads who thought very differently than anybody else. They were from countries we couldn't actually figure out the immigration for. It was millions of dollars over budget. The entire team quit and turned out the how mattered a lot. Achieving the goal with all these other side effects is meaningful. And so when I think about micromanagement or not, Mike, I tell that story, it's like, it's a balancing act, right? There's a part of someone could have gotten so close to that leader as to say they were basically doing it themselves. Unfortunately, the person who delegated this to that leader abdicated responsibility. It was just like, go do it. And so that's why I say, like, I think expectations are what get you there. Like if there's important cultural norms, if there are important processes to follow, if there are standards, if there's technology they should use, if there's people in the team network that they should double check with, you should make them aware of that. And on the other side of the equation, if they have ideas on how to do it better, 
if they have, you know, more understanding of newer technology to try to automate it, align on that, you know? And so we talk about it as co-authoring the expectation that, you know, it's not me telling them what to do. It's not me leaving them to their own devices, but I sort of give them the pen and try to be the editor whenever I can. Like, okay, how are you going to do this? Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to run an experiment. We're going to have a deadline. Great. Can I give you, I want, can you make these two tweaks? I think here's something I learned doing it and here's something else. And then they've written the story and people are much more prone to following the story that they wrote than the one that you just like put upon them. So it's a win-win. Like, you know, what's going to happen and they feel empowered to use your words, like, because they wrote the story. Yeah, it's really good. I, I love this idea of giving them the pen. That's really cool. And that, that can be a shift that people make, by the way. We're, we're covering so many shifts that people make in their career. The one that they might start with micromanagement, but then they go on a course. They go on a course about delegation and they, they get told that everything's about delegation. So they switch all the way over to abdication, what the, the term that you use. So they go from being authoritarian to being an abdicator with no accountability or responsibility. They just go, oh yeah, off you, off you go, do it your way kind of thing. But what I'm hearing from you is a conversation and a conversation with clarity that going to play back what I'm taking back, Dave, and love you to reflect on this. So, so yeah, there's a bit of a conversation about what I'm going to add that there needs to be a conversation about why, what makes this activity that they're about to do, what makes it important, what positive impact comes from them doing this thing that they're about to do. So, so the what and the why becomes an important conversation. Then there might be some boundaries. You said expectations. There might be some boundaries. Those boundaries might be related to values. They might be related to process. They might be related to all kinds of things that you're going to put some, let's say, left and right of arc or some, some boundaries around it. And then you're going to have a conversation about how. So tell us, what do you think is the best way to do this? How are you going to approach it? But as a conversation, it's not an abdication. How does that sit with you? Yeah, exactly. And then part of what I think helps people see the whole picture is recognizing that, like, again, we go back to that that system or sports analogy, like they're a piece of the whole pie, right? The reason we need them, you know, we're trying to have them play a spot on the field where they're optimal and do the tasks that will add the most value. But the reason we need to be aligned on those expectations is because they need to know where the next person on the boundary is going to run into them. And we need to have their expectations as well. And that's how you sort of get the team to stay stay coordinated because the interfaces line up, right? If we're doing systems thinking, someone's output is someone else's input. And so the expectations have to line up where we have these bottlenecks. And so that's the other the piece of how you, how do you go back from the individual now having an expectation to them feeling part of the collective? The reason we have to set these clear expectations is because of how they snap together. All right, cool. So call to action for everyone listening. If I can codify a little bit of what Dave and I have been talking about here for you to think about your delegation and to think about that it is a conversation, not abdication. And that conversation has clarity around expectations and boundaries. But then if you allow them to hold the pen during that conversation, they'll then start taking ownership and they'll feel empowered and enabled to to get on with it. So it's a conversation. It's not abdication. Let them hold the pen and have that conversation based around expectations and boundaries. And by them holding the pen, they will run with it and they'll feel empowered and they'll feel enabled to, to get on with it. All right, Dave, the, the other part that we spoke about with leverage before was you were talking about surrounding yourself with the right people. How do you select the people? How do you bring that team together? So in your vision of a leveraged leader, what role does this selection piece and bringing in the right people in the team, what does that look like? 
there's an argument to be made. There's not a more important decision you're going to make. So I firmly believe that people can change. I have examples from very early childhood, you know, with my parents, to people I've worked with, to people I've coached and mentored, like people can change and people can change massively. Rarely do they change fast. And so, you know, I think there was, was it Project Oxygen at Google? Or they did the big experiment. They did the big like testing of all the different teams and what made great teams. And one of the conclusions was like, it's really hard to develop people. And so we are better off putting more money into recruiting the best people who are more are closest to what we need than we are trying to take people who are far away from it and like build them into it. And again, that doesn't mean I'm giving up on people getting better and developing and changing. But if you are, you know, you're running a team and your team, most people have teams of three, five, 10 people. You don't have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And so, you know, for if I'm counseling someone to be a leveraged leader, you need to have the best darn team you can have. And so that's why I say it's probably the most important decision you're going to make is who you let in because it impacts your culture. It impacts the team dynamic. It impacts the outcomes. It impacts the diversity of what you're going to be able to do based on their experiences and their background. So that's if I was going to put a lot of attention to getting better in one place, because I'm trying to elevate my team, it is how effectively do I recruit the best talent? All right. So what are we looking for here? We hear a lot of things about you, you recruit for attitude, not skills, or or you're looking at your culture of your team. Are they going to be a cultural fit, et cetera, et cetera. How do we balance this thing of what the person is bringing to the table versus whether they're going to be a good cultural fit, et cetera, et cetera. How do we balance all of that? Often when I write it, I'll say don't hire for hire for character, not credentials. But what I mean by that is as you work with leaders who, you know, they're like, oh, this person is just not working out. It is so rare that they say to me, this person is not working out because they are, they do not have the skills I thought they had. It happens sometimes, but it's pretty rare. Usually they don't work out for some sort of shorthand of like, they're not a good team player. They're not like gritty and determined. They're not proactive. There's some sort of cultural norm in that organization. And every organization is different. And I'm happy to give examples that really paint the picture. But but every organization is different. And then someone comes in and there's just something fundamentally misaligned and they don't quite snap into the team. And it has become subtraction by addition. You've added capacity and somehow you're doing less because of this person. And so when I say like character over credentials, it's like, yes, of course they have to have the skills. Like don't take someone who like fits your three values and has nothing else. Like, yes, you need them to do that, but you can usually find both. The really, the answer is like, don't compromise. Like every time I have compromised and been like, well, you know, they're pretty good on these two value dimensions. And I, I have some, I have some worries about this one, but I'm sure it'll be fine because they're a really good developer. It never works out. It's like, the, the percentage has to be single digits where I was wrong on that. And it's huge cost. It is the cost to have recruited them the first time, to bring them onto the team, the damage they do, undo that damage, re-recruit, re-onboard. I mean, it is like a year mistake. And so, I don't know, I would say anytime someone, I'll get this question all the time. They'll be like, I have this person and they're they're pretty good in these ways and we're kind of excited, but these three people are nervous and like, I, you know, I'm kind of on the fence. What should I do? And I'm like, don't hire them. Like you're on the fence. Like what? why are we hiring anybody on the fence? Get way away from the fence. Hire people you are like exceedingly excited to spend more time with than your, than your family because that is who they are. All right. Very good. And we do spend a lot of time together in the workplace. I do like that a lot. So character over credentials and, and not compromising on that. And I did like what you said about subtraction by addition, because the person's not going to just be a dead weight. They're actually going to do damage. If they're not aligned to the values of the group, they're going to be disruptive. And that disruption actually 
damages the team. It doesn't, it's not just net zero, it does damage as, as they're there. How do we make sure that we balance cultural fit versus diversity though? Because we don't want to just employ a bunch of people that all look, smell and think the same. How do we make sure that we're then bringing in diversity of thought in that? Great question. I actually had to do a lot of culture interviews in my time. I think we tried every recruiting interview tactic in the world from groups to psychometric tests to, but one thing we did a good job with is like, we really studied the data to say like, well, what, what is actually predictive of success? And we, so we, we did that down at the interviewer level. So the good news, bad news is I was one of the two standard deviations, predictive culture interviewers. The bad news is that meant I did something like 750 of them over a decade. And the way that I tried to balance the thing you're describing is I think sometimes companies will go and say like, oh, this person has to be values aligned to everything. And usually like like everything in the world, like if you're aligned to everything, you're aligned to nothing. And so what I found out, and I think this is what helped is like, what is like the, what what is the closest thing to like the one non-negotiable? So if I use Bridgewater as an example, when I was doing interviews there, there was this idea that it was a culture of radical truth and radical transparency. Like the idea that everybody had the right to sort of like put forth their opinion and work it through to figure out what was correct. And the thing that I found from like a culture fit perspective was, can this person take, metabolize, and apply feedback? That was it. Like everything else, there was lots of, there was 25 other things we could have been checking. But if you could hear feedback, kind of examine it and say like, does this make sense? Not make sense? Should I like work this into the system of me and then become more effective as a result of it? And so the trick was simple. It was, let me ask that same question five, six, seven times in different ways. Because all the people who came in for the interview were ready for what's your biggest weakness, right? If you didn't, I mean, if you weren't, you definitely weren't getting the job. But anyone who prepared for 10 seconds was ready for that question. But the people who were genuinely these, who were, who were going to thrive in that environment that could metabolize that feedback, they had hundreds of stories because they had done it on their sports team. They had done it in university. They did it their last job. They did it when a project went well. It did when a project went poorly. They gave it to, you know, like they, they just had it. It was everywhere. And so my advice to people is always like, figure out like, what is your one foundational non-negotiable? Because here's the thing, that foundational non-negotiable, it's colorblind. It's genderblind. Like, can I, like think about the thing I'm saying. Like, can you hear, apply and change? Like if you have that engine, you know what I mean? And I didn't care what the domain was. If you, you could tell me about anything, but that's the thing I wanted to know. So other people would check skills and other types of things, but from a cultural perspective, that alignment was so fundamental. So like, what is it for different companies? And they're, and they're all very different. You know, like we teach Netflix, you know, off of a case uh, in some of our course sometimes. And, you know, they were all about like a super high performing, like it, it resonated with me personally, cause it was very much like company as an athletic team, like, you're as useful to us as long as we're winning, but it's, we can get someone better. We'll replace you. And that turns off so many people, but what is it that they can do to like, look for those people where that will light them up. And again, like you can, that sort of high striving, high achievement can happen in any domain, right? So you could screen for that without necessarily dinging on diversity, but you have to be really mindful of it. Cause I'm with you. You can do it in a more obtuse way and end up with just exactly the same thing every time. Yeah, I like it, Dave. And it's another one for us to think about as you're uh, going to work today, however you do it, public transport or driving or whatever. Just think about that. What is the one non-negotiable value in your business that you would focus on in an interview? And it will be colorblind. It will be colorblind. It won't matter about race, religion, background, etc. Those values, those underpinning values will be colorblind. So I, I, love, I love that, Dave. The final one I want to unpack a little bit, you hinted towards this all the way back in your intro, is also then whether we hang on to people for far too long. So if someone is disruptive or not aligned to the values of the group or is not 
conducive to the environment that you want. How do we make sure that we're alert to that and we notice early and actually act on it? Because it can be challenging. It can be challenging to think, well, okay, this person's not working out. How can we accelerate that? Well, actually, I can connect it. So a couple of minutes ago, we talked about expectations, right? Like how did we get work into the hands of people with a story that they wrote? One of the reasons I think that is so fundamental to good leadership is it sets the table for this, right? Like usually having gone through conversations like this thousands of times, you know, you'll be like, oh, like, you know, this project isn't going that well. Let's, let's talk about it. And usually the first set of conversations will be, I don't have the right resources. I'm not clear on what you expect. You know, I didn't know X, Y, it's all, it tends to, all be environmental, like all the things that they didn't have in order to succeed. So if you've done your work to set up really good expectations that they wrote and they visualized, well, then like these are all, all these excuses are short circuited. You don't have to spend a lot of time on those. Now you might, there'll be occasions you uncover something and that's fine. Then put it back in place and keep going. But the good news about taking that off the table is all you really have left is skill and will. Like, can they do the work and do they want to do the work? And even though will, I think is a little bit more complicated, I tend to want to try to deal with that one first because if they don't want to do the work, I don't need to spend a lot of time training and or figuring out if they can, you know, be performing the role at the level of the skill I need. If they don't want to do it like, and, and they're not able to do it naturally, we're, we're kind of done. And so that's that's like step two. Too. And then when I get into the, the skill piece, there's just a part of the way that I've tended to think about it is what is a reasonable ramp time for somebody in this role, like in the world and in our company? You know, like how long does it take for a data analyst to be able to independently produce X? Is that three months? Is that six months? Is that nine months? And I think it, it will vary by jobs. Like some jobs are, are clearer and more direct. Some are more, they tend to be a, a work of putting together more like conceptual pieces. It might take a little bit longer. You might need more context. You might have to like go collect more resources, but it's usually somewhere in that zone of three to nine months. And sort of, I sort of, I know what that looks like. And then I'm just comparing, like, how is this person, is this person going to hit that milestone or not? With some wiggle. And if it seems pretty clear after, you know, if it's a six month milestone, but we're three months in and it, it, we're, so, we're showing no growth and no trajectory. And I've dealt with all the environmental pieces and they still want to do it. And all that's left is the skill. Then I'm, I'm probably calling it. And if it seems like it's going to like, you know, the reason I want to go through that rigor is because sometimes like we want things faster than are realistic. You know what I mean? So I have to remember in my head, like, it feels like this person has been around forever. They've been around for three weeks and you're like, oh yeah, six months. It takes six months to be good at this thing. And we're only three weeks in. I wish that they, they could be good at it in three weeks. I guess the last thing make would say is, and this one's risky. So just like take it with a grain of salt. There is usually people know, like usually they know and you know earlier than like those milestones. Do you know what I mean? And so like, how do you, like, I'm not saying to be just like impetuous and like, just, you know, but I'd say like, don't ignore your instincts. Like if it feels like it's not working and you're having good, honest conversations, you can usually see it on them. You know, there's usually not a lot of benefit to dragging it out. So like the more you can be honest and be human and give them support to transition out. A lot of times for people, they, they are unwilling to tell you that because they don't know what's on the other side of that answer. And so the more you can paint that picture and make it a little less like an abyss, the more that they might be honest and you can sort of get to a place where you get that person, that higher achiever into that spot. Yeah. All right. So I'm loving this focus on skill and will. I like that a lot. And I like the thought that you're going to have a conversation because they could be thinking it too, like you said. And it could be a big relief to them that things come out into the open and, and you can actually have that conversation. So look, Dave, lots of great takeaways from today's conversation, this thought about the leveraged leader. And for everyone listening at home or on your way to work, whatever you're doing right now, think about that. Are you a leveraged leader? And are you doing the things that Dave is talking about? Think about all 
all of this, you know, delegation is not abdication. Think about how you are going to empower and enable your team and think about making sure you've got the right people around you so that you can maximize your impact on the world. So many great takeaways from today, Dave. I'd like to now take us to our final rapid round. These are the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. I'm really interested to know your answers here. What's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? Well, I'm not to be not to beat the leverage thing to death, but like for me personally, I grew up like pretty lower middle class. My parents divorced when I was like 12. This idea of becoming the man of the house pretty early. I have this huge amount of pride in doing things myself. You know, like here we are, my wife and I do this business. We don't like it's really just the two of us. That's a bugger feature, depending on what you think. But it is this constant. If we go back to like, why did I start with self-awareness being like a, a place for a leader to start? It's like I sort of fought this secret demon for a long time where like that that asset that like I can put my hands on anything, I can usually figure it out, becomes a liability in that I was slow to delegate. I was slow to ask for help and things of those nature. And so I think it's that, you know, like I, for me personally, it's that like, can you get leverage? Can you focus on what you it is you're best at? Can you ask for help from others or who are better? You know, and that has a lot of secondary benefits. Like when I started to do that, it started to open up new doors for me. Like there were levels of the game that I didn't even know existed until I started to ask for help from people who were further down the path. And then when I did that, they showed me like, oh, you're not even thinking nearly big enough. So that was, that, that would be my advice for the 20 year old me. Do that sooner. Yeah. Really good, Dave. All right. Thank you for sharing that. What, what's your favorite book? My favorite book. I'm, so, I'm like looking over my bookshelf because there's a lot of books. I would say the most nutrient dense book I have read in the last five years was $100 million offers by Alex Hermosi. So I don't know if you, do you know his story at all. The 30 second version. So this was, uh, he like opened a gym, figured out how to open multiple gyms, kind of got into Facebook ads right around the time that Facebook ads were doing this and realized like, oh, wow, I could fill up gyms with Facebook ads. Then started realizing that the better business was teaching other gym owners how to do that. So creates a business above that. Then realized that he didn't even have to, he was good, but he was going to do it in person. Then realized serendipitously that he didn't even need to go in person. He could just teach him a system remotely, creates this huge business, sells it. Now has a business sort of above that called acquisition.com. But anyways, this first one is just the very first piece, which is like, how do you make a hundred million dollar offer? And he sells a book for 99 cents. It's like his new book's about to come out and it's just, it's incredibly nutrient dense. There's like cool little equations in there. And if you've ever thought about like, how do you start a business? What are the psychological dynamics of an offer? How do you price an offer? It was outstanding. And, it, and it's funny, if you don't know Alex, like he looks like a guy who's like spent time in a gym, you know, and yet, you know, he's got nasal strips and, you know, a tank top on and all of his podcasts. And yet he's built this $100 million business on its way to a billion dollars. And it's, he gives most of it away for free. So it's just, it's pretty outstanding. I think a lot of people have probably fumbled into it at this point, but it's, it's a good book. I'll check that one out. It's really interesting. The the funny thing that you said there, like listening to the story, his story was one of leverage as well. When you think about the story that you just shared of his own journey. So that's really interesting. What's your favorite quote? I tend to say this one to myself very often. You can have anything you want, not everything. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's a nice one. I'm going to sit and reflect on that one as well. All right, Dave Klein, this, this has been a wonderful conversation. There's so many nuggets of gold in this and some actionable things that people can take away and go and think about in their own leadership and in their own businesses. So thank you so much for today. If people are curious about what they've heard, they're curious about the MGMT Accelerator, the work that, that you do, how do people find you? Yeah, for the MGMT Accelerator, mgmtaccelerator.com, our next public cohort with leaders around the world will be in October. You know, if you want to skip those playbooks every Wednesday, you can you can find that on either of my social profiles. I'm probably most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So decline II on Twitter and Dave Klein on LinkedIn. 
All right. Brilliant, Dave. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing very openly your own journey, but then the wisdom that comes through that and your own insights. I feel richer for having this conversation and I know that the audience will as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you, Mike. Thanks for having me on and uh, pushing me to think bigger. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne goes on, Gerald Calibo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.